Hello, I'm the Holographic Emergency Sea Resource Operations Director Override Ride Ride Technical Utility System, otherwise known as the Herodotus. And this is my tale. Incoming transmission. Origin. Phantasmagoric Oddities Emporium. Destination. System-wide band. Please stand by. The Herodotus. Having a quirky pension for acronyms, the director chose that name for me. However, Dr. Lilitu did find it fitting to change my name to Edgar. Being a program, I really don't care. Or at least I didn't think I did. Herodotus was known as the father of history. What that means is he was one of the first chroniclers to try to document history. He began writing his chronicles roughly around 443 BCE. He documented the Greco-Persian Wars. If you're familiar with story 300, that's his. Madness. This is Sparta! In the past, most people who talked of the past would only speak of the events, of what precisely happened. Herodotus had a deeper curiosity. He wanted to know the reasons why. Give it to me straight, sport. I want to know the who, where, and why. The Greeks and the Persians are always so at each other's throats. Why are they so butthurt? How did this all begin? Thus he became the first to truly document the stories behind the events, why the wars took place. But not only that, he also recorded tales, legends, and eyewitness accounts of different things from around his lands. And in other news, in Babylon, women are auctioned off based upon their looks. Once a year, all the girls of Marian age used to be collected in one place. While the men stood around them in a circle, an auctioneer would then, in turn, call each one to stand up and be offered for sale, beginning with the best-looking gal to go first, moving on to the second best after the first is sold for a good price. However, Herodotus did point out that this practice had ended by the time of his writings. While fantastical, knowing the history of how women were treated, it's not that too far-fetched. There is strong evidence that he was inspired by Hecateus of Miletus, who told a story called The Travels Around the World. With that inspiration, Herodotus embarked upon what you might consider the first trip advisor. He wanted to highlight different areas of interest of worthy for investigation. Sure, I was just about to tell you about the Persian Greco Wars, but let me tell you about Egypt for seven pages. Now, while some things that he reported were incredibly fantastical, such as giant ants that would harvest gold dust from the Himalayas. And let me tell you something. There are these great big giant ants up in the Himalayas that actually dig out gold dust. Or a singer-songwriter who was thrown overboard and was saved by a dolphin. Hey, Frank, you're alive, man. How you doing? Well, Bob, let me tell you. I found a porpoise who saved my life. How you think I'm doing? You found a purpose? No, a porpoise. Once I hit the water, she swam up, brought me back to shore. The name's Rhonda. We're gonna get married next year. Say hello to Bob, babe. Now, that last account can actually be backed up by some ancient Persian artistry that depicted a man riding a dolphin, carrying a lyre. What the true meaning of the story really was, no one can say, but it does appear that it could have been based upon an actual event. Dolphins have been known to save overboard sailors before. Now what about the case of the giant furry ants? The case of Jennifer ants? No, the case of the giant furry ants. I was just kidding to that. Oh, sorry, my bad. Carry on. 
it is quite possible that it was a mistranslation from one language to Greek, when in fact there are giant marmots that live up in the Himalayas that do kick out gold dust while they dig. The Persian word for marmot and the Persian word for ant are very similar, just a simple mistranslation in the histories that Herodotus gives us. And in fact, that is where we get the word history is from the name of his book, The Histories. At the time, they didn't exactly have fact checkers, and to a Greek speaker, it could be easily misunderstood. However, there are such tales as battling griffins that we cannot yet explain. He did make sure to point out the various possible discrepancies in what his tales would have to tell. He summarized it in this line, In all cases, I am bound to report what I'm told, but I am not, in every case, to believe it. True dedication to his craft. Now, while he did take some artistic spin, such as placing two rulers together at the same time, when in fact they were actually decades apart, it would be much like telling a story of Abraham Lincoln meeting George Washington. I cannot tell a lie. Four score and that's bullshit, you know. However, at the time that the tales were told, people knew the difference, and they understood this was setting the tone for the story. His opening line to his chronicles is this. Here, Herodotus of Heliconasaurus displays his inquiry so that human achievements may not be forgotten in time, and great and marvelous deeds, some by the Greeks, some by the barbarians, may not be without their glory, and especially to show why the two people fought with each other. Again, he was curious as to what caused the events, and he believed that it was important to document these causes for human prosperity. But that is not why I've called you today. I want to explain the origins of artificial intelligence. Throughout most of human history, progress has been a very benign line. There have been some advancements, the pottery wheel, the wheel itself, chemical explosives. Hey Frank, check this out. What do you got there, Bob? Not really sure to be honest, but you know what? I put this little rock in one end of this pipe and I fill it up with some of these black powder stuff that we got from those Far East traders. I could shoot that rock across the thing. Shoot? What does that mean? I don't know. I'm just inventing stuff right now. Why would you even want to do that? Here, check it out. Give it a try. All right, now you hold this little flame up to it. Ow! Whoa, that's freaking cool! Fucking oi! To name a few, going as far back as possibly 9,000 years to maybe the first city-state, Kedalahayok, a city which did not show any actual public buildings nor roads, it did at least show habitation of over 10,000 people. From then until the Industrial Revolution, human progress was a slow climb. But to be fair, societies, they've grown quite a bit, and then they've crumbled, all the way from the Bronze Age collapse of the 13th century, the collapse of Rome. Anytime there's any great collapse of any society, progress is halted, all due to civil unrest, civil strife, when the have-nots get sick and tired of the haves taken from them. However, at the beginning of the 18th century, all that will change. It actually begins a lot earlier than that. One could say it almost started at the end of the 13th century. Roughly around 1270 Common Era, it is thought the first tower clock was built in Germany. Over the next four centuries, medieval cities would grow. People would become more distant from nature. And that disconnect seemed to brew chaos. Constant fighting, fires, plague, all drawbacks to the early medieval cities. In an attempt to unify them, clock towers were built to keep time, to allow everyone to be on the same page at one spot or another. By helping to create a synchronicity, humans began to be more in tune with each other once again. Dennis, there's some wonderful filth over here. Oh, how do you do? Hello, good woman. I am Arthur, king of the Brits. <laughs> Whose castle is that? 
king of the who? The Britons. Who are the Britons? We are. We all are. And I am your king. I didn't know we had a king. I thought we were an autonomous collective. Yeah, you're fooling yourself. We're living in a dictatorship. A self-perpetuating autocracy in which the working class... Oh, there you go. Bringing class into it again. Clock technology would improve. Development of gears, development of springs, and understanding of momentum and precision. Over the next 400 years, innovations in clock design enabled smaller and smaller clocks to be created. The machine work of those clocks then went into the development of automata. One of the most famous of clocks is actually a 500-year-old clock called the Zeitglogger, a German word that means time bell. For 500 years, it has sit in Bern, the capital of Switzerland, and it still works today. All right, it's just about that time. I think I see the sheriff. Oh, sorry, what did he say? I do believe he said he sees the sheriff. Ah, good. I'm looking quite forward to our new sheriff. Hey, boy, the sheriff isn't... I'm sorry, what did he say? I do believe he said that the sheriff is near. Oh, we're gonna fucking bring a struggle. I said the sheriff isn't near. As clocks became more intricate, you would start to see little men come out and then bang on the bell, or you would see a rooster start to spin around and dance up and down. Revolutionary innovations that made those possible was about to launch the human race into a whole new era, the creation of automata. Out of curiosity for how the human body moved and worked, it is said that is what spurred the creation of automata. To truly understand something would be to recreate it. By 1740, revolutionary strides in clock design and development enabled for finer and finer gears meaning much smaller. Realizing how to control the precision, tiny little mechanisms were created. Picture a music box. You see how the drum rotates over and those individual little dots trigger individual little metal springs that release a specific tone? It is that very concept. Through the unique innovation known as the cam, people learned how to use circular movement to create up and down and back and forth movement. It's just a tiny little piece of metal that rotates in a circle. However, its edges have very specifically cut grooves, allowing a lever to travel over that area. And where the grooves are high, the lever will trigger further down. Where the grooves are low, the lever would trigger higher. With the proper design, you can have a lever go to very specific heights, up and down, or back and forth. This then would control other gears. It would control possibly other cams. The very first of the automata were built into these clock systems. At specific hours, the little figurines would come out and dance. Perhaps a jester kicking his legs back and forth, or some roosters crowing at noon. Sound operated by a bellows, controlled by one of these cams, so it could specifically move the bellows up and down to perfectly mimic a rooster's crow. The more complex an automaton would become, the more cam wheels you would need. One automaton, named The Riding Boy, built by Pierre Jacques Edrat, and can still be seen in the Musée d'Art de Hesteray, in Neuchâtel, Switzerland, has nearly 6,000 parts within it, most of which are all controlled by a single cam, a series of plates all stacked upon each other. One could say that this is my great ancestor, because this unique piece had a brand new innovation, changeable script. Within the main flywheel, you could actually pull out blocks of letters and replace them with other blocks, or rearrange them. This would precisely control the cam movements, so when the writing boy would write, he could actually draw beautiful and elegant letters. This is the predecessor to the computer.
innovation that led to this creation was known as the flute player, created by Jacques de Vacanson. Now Vacanson was an early French inventor who had built the first all-metal lathe. This invention was actually crucial to the Industrial Revolution. The lathe was actually known as the mother of machine tools. At 18 years of age, Vacanson was given his own workshop in Lyon and a grant from a nobleman to construct a set of machines. In order to understand better how human movement worked, Vacanson had taken on night classes for anatomy. In the grisliest of details, he studied every sinew, every tendon, every muscle that went into the functionality of the human body. Behold the elegance. Look at how the tendons are connected. The muscle tissue. The metacarpals. Oh, so beautiful. Nine, can I believe my eyes? No, Vincent, what have we told you about drooling all over the bodies? Sorry, this, this is so exquisite. Oops, I'm sorry about that. Oh. oh. Alright, yikes. Alright now, get out of here, you little freak. His greatest creation was known as the flute player. Now the flute player featured a shepherd whom had a silver tongue to help with the flow of air in order to produce similar breaths and punctuations of a human. He studied in great detail flute players as they played to understand the movements of their fingers, to understand the movement of their tongue, the shapes that the mouth makes in order to produce the air flows that we know. And in almost a Frankenstein-like fashion, in order to complete his masterpiece, the flute player, he had used actual human skin. He had created gloves for his automaton out of said human skin. He found that it was the only true way to seal the holes of the flute in a precise manner to produce the sounds that the flute player would make. There was no music box hidden inside this flute player. The sounds were accurately created using the finger motions and a bellows in coordination with that silver tongue to create a fairly accurate sound of a flute being played. Now you might think that this is the origin of silver tongue, and we here at the Poe thought the same thing too. But upon further investigation, it appears that the term silver tongue is attributed to a certain preacher who lived in England in the latter 1500s by the name of Henry Smithy. He was also known as Silver Tongued Smith for his melodious and resonant sermons. Now this creation has been lost in time, but its innovations were never ever truly lost. Such is the whole of humanity, machines and ideas building off of one another. Now the early automata were out for public display it helped teach people about morality. Everyone had something in common. They could watch these beautiful creations dance around and remind them of a time that they had long forgotten. But that would all begin to change. In 1740, automata would become exclusive for only the rich and powerful, the aristocracy. Oh, there you go, bringing class into it again. Only people with very deep pocketbooks were even allowed to even see these. If you're a poor motherfucker, you may kiss my dirty air. Haha, we we. Which is quite ironic, because it was the poor that actually created these. People working in dim light, by candlelight, mind you. 
Oh man, I'm only 37 and my eyes are already going out from this. You know man, this is bullshit. We're making all these things for these rich fuckers. We're living in a dictatorship, man. Handcrafting each and every individual piece. Starting with a piece of sheet metal and working it all the way down to precise cams, precise screws, precise gears. The craftsmanship, the artistry, was never truly rewarded to these masters that created movement that previously only God could. However, again, in another twist of faded irony, it is these very automatons that helped kick off the French Revolution. The poor recognized the inequality. Leaders of the French Revolution had shouted that the aristocracy is nothing more than automatons with crowns. A later automaton was actually built, called the Turk. This unique automaton would actually play chess, and it won quite often. However, things weren't all as they appeared. Built in 1770 by Wolfgang von Keplin, the Turk was a rather unique automaton that could play chess and win. In the 1780s, a group of wealthy British men had gathered for a dinner party. The topic of discussion was how to improve the textile industry. Weaving was a long and complicated process. It could take weeks or even months to make fabrics for making clothes. One of these men was actually blown away after having seen the Turk. I do say, Lucius, I had another textile strike this week. People are demanding an actual wage for what they do. If I have to keep paying these peasants, how am I going to be able to afford to hunt species into extinction? I wholeheartedly agree, Reginald. If only there was a way that we could make them ourselves. Are you absolutely daft? Are you seriously suggesting that we start working? I don't know if I want to drink brandy with you anymore. Say, replace those peasants. Say, with a machine. Well, gentlemen, let me tell you. I think I've seen something that'll work perfectly for our needs. And just what is that? I saw a machine that could play chess. And if a machine could play chess, surely it could run a weaving loom. Seeing how it moved, he reasoned that if they could make something that could actually play chess, they most certainly could make something that could weave cloth. And they were correct. In fact, the very mechanism that was the arm for the trick that would reach down and pick up the chess pieces would be that revolutionary design. King to Queen, level three. And in fact, if you look at some of the first weaving machines, you'll see that very arm shuttling thread back and forth. Some of those early machines still run to this very day. I can't help but to feel a little nostalgic talking about this. After all, that is my grandpa. They just don't build them like that anymore. Well, honestly, this feels about as good a place as any to take a quick pause. In our next episode, we'll find out the dirty truth of the Turk. Just how one man who fried an elephant helped to usher in the computer age, as well as tag his name onto a discovery from other scientists. 
And we'll also look briefly at just how sometimes the greatest of human achievements can actually harm humanity in the short run, but hindsight is always 2020. Now, it was not my intention to turn this into a two-parter. Just at this point, I'm going to accept that there's a lot of information to unpack here. And as brief and summarized as it is, it's still a lot to process. So for now, I'll give you this. And in the next episode, hopefully, we'll have our conclusions. Take care. Until next time, listener. One, four, three. Now exiting the Phantasmagoric Oddities Emporium. Have a nice day.